0: This programme is brought to you as part of the ESRC-funded Rising Powers and Interdependent Futures Research Programme, led by the University of Manchester.
1: Brick Talk with Stephen Sacker In a country like India, the skilled people, the successful corporations are competing in a global market. They are global players and their salaries, their profits are rising to global levels. The bottom level is being held back. India's poverty is, yes, it is the largest in the world in terms of absolute numbers. I never, not once, saw a corrupt deal being cut. I came from outside. Everyone knew that I would be in government for two, three years and I would go back to academe and I would write freely. There are no surprises that no deals were cut in my presence.
0: Today, Stephen speaks to the former chief economist at the World Bank and ex-chief economic advisor to the government of India, Korshik Basu. Korshik Basu, as, you know, one of India's leading economists, economic thinkers, when this acronym BRIC, the most powerful developing emerging economies, was developed... um, Did you think it was useful, and were you very optimistic that India could indeed be a leading force in the BRIC nations?
1: Uh, I have to say, uh, initially, uh, when BRIC, the cluster, was formed, um, I I was quite um, hesitant about what it would achieve, and I felt uh, that it may have been the beautiful acronym that got the better of uh, real need for this. Subsequently, um, I, when I was in the Indian government from uh, 2009 to 2012, um, there was India was very engaged. By then, South Africa was a part of the cluster, BRICS. It was, and I could see the purpose that um, BRIC or later BRICS could fulfil. And in particular, I may mention uh, two things which uh, were extremely important in this somewhat strange cluster. There was one country with a huge glut of foreign exchange reserve. This is China. And there were other countries with great need for foreign exchange for investing in their infrastructure. And so this combination was a very nice clustering of a group of countries, some with a supply, some with a need that could solve a problem. And I began to see the role it could play and subsequently the formation of the New Bank and other activities show that actually it's turned out to be, in retrospect, an extremely useful cluster stretch literally across the world.
0: But... As you pointed out at the very beginning, part of the the, the, the neatness of BRIC was simply that it was a, a very easy acronym to remember. But if one looks at the substance, the economic substance, yes. it seems to me that, that the countries are so different and their economic strengths and weaknesses so diffuse that, that there is, to a certain extent, no logic in seeing them as one grouping. And in particular, I want you to think about India as against China. Because although yes. you're both you know the, the two most populous countries in the world and it's tempting to see an obvious linkage between the two, surely the story of the last ten years is is one of delinkage not linkage
1: absolutely this is interesting um on the acronym I should tell you I had uh, once suggested that we should get the spelling right and bring Kenya <laughs> into it uh, and so it would be just a perfect um Batch and Kenya would have played some role. But let me get back to uh, the disparate countries. That did cause some problem initially. Um, for India, I think there was some hesitation that uh, being a part of the Bretton Woods group, IMF, World Bank, these were a whole host of countries. India had become fairly important in this cluster. In this smaller group group, with China, uh, with its huge foreign exchange reserves and a very powerful economy, India would probably get sidelined. And there was that initial concern. I think the tipping point was when Russia began to take a lot of interest in the formation of of making this cluster into a useful, important group, that it moved further on. And uh, by then, India realized that Just as the country with a lot of money to lend has one kind of power, a country that has a lot of money it needs, and on the other hand, it was by then an economy that was growing at 8-9% per annum. India also had a different kind of uh, power in this uh, cluster. And it happened. And in retrospect, it turned out to be actually, uh, I think, quite useful. It's still to be seen. It's still the early days of the new bank, how much will be achieved. I should tell you that one, there are one or two other um, uh, concerns that the Bretton Woods organizations were not very good at, and there was some hope that the um, uh, this cluster would manage to fulfill. But,
0: but let, let, let me bring you back to the okay. direct comparison between India and China. Yes. Both have had very impressive growth rates over a sustained period. But while China's economy has totally transformed in terms of urbanization, infrastructure, manufacturing. India's has been a much more patchy story. And still, I believe it's right in saying 50% of your workforce is involved in agriculture and rural uh, economic activity. Why the fundamental difference between China and India?
1: Yeah, one important difference is actually India's relatively rapid growth has had a much shorter history. In the case of China, sustained rapid growth started in 1980, and China got a 30-year run of roughly 10% per annum growth, which is unparalleled in history. India's growth picks up in 1994. It's a slow pickup. India moves into roughly 6 to 7% growth picks up even more in 2003, between 2003 and 2005. It was moving into a 9% growth run. So it's a much shorter history. Uh, And there is another very big difference between the two countries. India being a democratically run country means the scope for policy experimentation is much less in India. The sort of policy experiments you saw in China Uh, whereby you would get huge growth one year and then the growth would go completely. Uh, One fourth of the economy would vanish in another year. We saw some of those during the Mao Tse Tung period. In India, that was impossible. No leader would have the courage to experiment with policies of that kind because that person would be out of power the following year. So it was much more sort of -of middle-of-the-road cluster of policies that India tried. Because of the crisis in 1991, India made reforms which India couldn't have made between 1991 and 1993. And then it was a very slow pickup in growth. From 2003, it's been actually a handsome growth since then. But as I said, it's a short run still.
0: But is your contention that India's democracy, which is a a genuine uh, form of democracy, if somewhat chaotic, and involves powers that lie with the central government running up very often against powers that lie with the state governments. Is it your contention that India's form of genuine democracy has hampered it in terms of maximizing its growth potential when compared with the, frankly, undemocratic, very controlled and centralized system that we see in China?
1: Yes, the short answer is yes, but I better clarify because it's not saying that therefore democracy is something that India should regret. I do believe that uh, democracy in India slowed down India's policy experimentation and through that uh, growth, but it was all well worth it. India made investments which, if it does not mess up now, Which were not seen in any newly independent country in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, there were a whole host of African countries, Ghana, Kenya, which were very progressive to start with, but somehow floundered. In India, thanks to the founding fathers, democracy, free speech, secularism, which I think is extremely important, these were commitments that were made that made it a chaotic democracy with a lot of criticism in public space, actually more than in virtually any country. The criticism in public space uh, during my three years in government, I was very sensitive to that. I think it's slowed down growth, but it's such an important investment that if India can hold on to that, and now with growth having gone back to 9%, last two, three years, it's slowed down a little bit. Last, I should say, four five years, it's slowed down a little bit. If India can hold on to those changes, it'll be a longer run good for India that wouldn't have happened without the democracy.
0: On the specific issues of urbanization and infrastructure development, which, of course, drive uh, investment and productivity gains, why does India still struggle when compared with China?
1: Yeah, the, India's two big stumbling blocks. One is infrastructure. And the other is a very cumbersome bureaucracy. It's uh, just getting permits and clearances takes extremely long in India. Um, The infrastructure, there are two sides to that. One is infrastructure does need a lot of long-term investment uh, because you have to put in money where the returns you will not see over the next uh, 20 years. You have to be prepared to do that. And India somehow faltered on those, though I believe that on that a realization has come And there is now a lot of effort to improve from roads, ports, airports. You are actually beginning to see that. You've you've seen that for the last seven, eight years, and that's continuing. On the bureaucracy, it's a longer story. Um, India inherited the British bureaucratic system. And whereas Britain and during my time in uh, government, I used to talk a lot to Commonwealth countries, for instance, Australia, about reforming of the old bureaucratic system, including Britain. Britain's uh, reformed the bureaucratic system hugely. India just stayed true to the old system and it became a stumbling block. Decision making was slow. On that also, I think the realization is there. Changes are beginning to take place. But but yes, yes. these two have held back India for a longish time.
0: And Professor Basu, we have to be honest, when you talk about bureaucracy, we can't Ever forget that with bureaucracy in India comes corruption, endemic corruption at every level from national to local. And that is a huge drag on India's economic potential. And it doesn't seem that the, any government in recent times has been capable of, of really rooting
1: it out. I, I agree fully. And um, uh, though I should point out, Stephen, uh, that there are a whole bunch of economists, uh, conservative economists, who feel actually corruption oils the economy and makes it grow faster. I don't want to get into that debate. My own feeling is corruption hinders growth. And even if it did not hinder growth, it cuts into the moral fabric of society and we ought to get rid of it or diminish it as much as possible. Now, India has done poorly on that. and And by the way, on that... India and China are quite comparable. And here is the big problem. Right at the top in India, we've had leaders who were, I think, very serious about controlling corruption. And likewise in China, I think Xi Jinping came in with a lot of determination to cut down corruption. But here is a problem which is very poorly understood. And just give me two, three minutes, let me explain. Once corruption becomes endemic in a country, a political leader serious about controlling corruption has the choice of picking almost anyone and discovering that there is corruption there. It's only rationality and political intelligence that makes you realize that's all you need to realize, that if you begin to pick on your own friends and put them behind bars, you will be out of power in no time. So all leaders, even the ones serious about corruption, when they find corruption all over the place, begin to pick up on people on the other side, on the opposing side. And once this goes on for some time, it becomes a form of cronyism. You're picking on the people who oppose you, the media that challenges you, and you let your people free. This is a problem that countries fall into, and in the end, corruption does not go away. I don't have an easy solution, because having worked in the Indian government... I was acutely aware that while there were lots of corrupt people, there were also political leaders who were very, very serious about getting rid of corruption. I worked with a prime minister who was actually completely flawless in terms of his own intention to do away with corruption. I'm talking of Dr. Manmohan Singh, but it is very difficult when it is Permeated through the country. I have detailed ideas, but I don't want to go into those now. But in
0: essence, you're you're saying that when you were the government's chief economic advisor, you knew that some of the people you were working with and alongside in senior positions in government were corrupt.
1: I, I knew, but I must clarify again one very interesting thing, which was my experience. In my presence, I never, not once, saw a corrupt deal being cut. But my view is the following I came from outside. Everyone knew that I would be in government for two, three years and I would go back to academe and I would write freely. There are no surprises that no deals were cut in my presence. So I did not see any act of corruption while I was there, but I knew. I knew that there was this uh, politician X, this politician Y. I knew from my friends in government that they were corrupt. Of course, it was there. But I'm also stressing that I knew that there was a whole bunch of people who were not corrupt at all who were bumbling along trying to stop it, but it was pervasive and and they were not succeeding.
0: One of the phenomena that we've seen in the BRICS nations over the last 15-20 years is a dramatic growth in inequality. And in India in particular, there's the uh, clearly thriving sectors like your tech sector, which has produced billionaires. And at the very same time, there is endemic poverty, which means that hundreds of millions of Indian citizens are still living in absolute poverty. Indeed, most of the world's poor people live in India. How does India translate consistently good economic growth rates into, A, the eradication of of absolute poverty, and B, addressing the issue of inequality?
1: The tech sector that you talked about, I should first point out that the tech sector has made a lot of money, but there is one saving grace with the tech sector. It's a lot of newcomers who came into the sector and then flourished and did well, which is much better than many of the older sectors where uh, Few families controlled the wealth and remained wealthy and became super rich over a long time. At least the tech sector had the mobility advantage of people coming in afresh and then doing very, very well. But India's inequality is huge. Uh, On poverty, I should clarify, India's poverty is, yes, it is the largest in the world in terms of absolute numbers. But if you look at percentages the poverty i'm using the world bank line i worked at the world bank the poverty line of $1.90 india's poverty is would be now down to say 16 17% of the country's population there are countries with 70% of no, the of people no of course but i was careful i bank. was careful
0: to say that it's, yes, it's, I know. it's the absolute I, i'm not the absolute I'm numbers not, are still uh, shocking yes.
1: Shocking. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm not correcting you, but I'm uh, uh, clarifying so that the person, people who listen Mm. to this don't get this wrong. It's shockingly high and it's intolerable. Something ought to be done about this. On the poverty front, frankly, I'm hopeful because India has taken a whole host of measures. And if you look at the numbers, they are declining. Where I'm much more worried is the other side of your question, the inequality. India now has a whole bunch of people who are in the world's absolutely highest league in terms of uh, net wealth. And it also has, as you said, in absolute uh, numbers, just huge amounts of poverty. So the inequality is shockingly high. Much ought to be done about this, but here there is a genuine problem of global action being needed. And again, let me, allow me to elaborate a little bit. If you look at inequality across the world from studies done by Tony Atkinson, with whom I worked very closely During my last year in the World Bank and um, um, uh, Tony Atkinson, as you know, uh, passed away. Soon after that, I worked very closely with him and several others. What was very clear from the evidence that was coming in is virtually within each country in the world, inequality is rising very sharply. In China, it's rising. In India, it's rising. In the United States, it's rising. What's happening is clear that the bottom end of rich countries Is coming under competition from the top end of poor countries. And there, the salaries, wages are being held back. Inequality is rising. In a country like India, the skilled people, the successful corporations are competing in a global market. They are global players. And their salaries, their profits are rising to global levels. The bottom level is being held back. I do believe this is dreadful. A lot of action ought to be taken. I do believe that there should be higher taxes, higher transfers. There should be a wealth tax for inheritance tax because one of the greatest wrongs is when someone is being born super rich and someone is being born super poor. These ought to be corrected. But there is a limit to how much a single country can do because you will begin to get flight of capital out of your country, flight of skill out of your country. Inequality in the world today now needs global concerted action of the kind that we have done for global trade through WTO, we've done for labor standards through ILO. You need something for global inequality management.
0: Yes, now it's interesting, you've just said that you would like to see fundamental tax reform in India to address inherited wealth. Uh, But actually, in this political cycle, we are seeing dramatic reforms in India, not least of the tax system with the introduction of the GST, the goods and services tax, which is a form of nationwide value-added tax uh, introduced by the Modi government. We've also seen him try to address what he regarded as the scourge of the black economy and the black market by taking out of circulation the 500 and 1000 rupee notes. Uh, he claimed that that would clean up the economy. So interestingly, right now in India, we're seeing a, a, an energetic prime minister who says that he is bringing a new level of economic reform to the system. Do you think he's going to make a difference?
1: Um, he'll make a difference, but not all for the better uh let me uh, take on the two that you referred to one of them i think was a completely wrong intervention it was a huge intervention and a wrong intervention the demonetization uh with uh, I, this was on uh, in november uh, 2016 it was announced with a four hour notice that uh, um, 500 and 1000 rupee notes as you just mentioned would cease to be legal tender. So people would have to go to banks and get them changed. They would not be able to use them in the marketplace. What, I don't know to what extent this was realized or not realized, 500 and 1,000 rupee notes constitute 86% of the value of currency in circulation in India. So with a four-hour notice, you are declaring that to be ceasing to be legal tender and giving them barely two months for people to change them in banks, and then this currency would be extinguished. This had a totally negative effect, as was completely predictable. And you know the countries that have gone in for this kind of demonetization, it's, it's a very sobering list. This has been tried by Venezuela, this has been tried by North Korea, this has been tried by Myanmar. It was a completely wrong intervention, and I don't think... Really, no good has come out of this, and it has slowed down India's growth.
0: Uh, And you don't think it's cleaned up the economy, got some of the black marketeers and the racketeers and the smugglers?
1: No, 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 I don't think so. And and, uh, let me just explain why not. One is all the big uh, black marketeers with black money very quickly convert their black money into real estate and ship it out of the country. So the black money is made and it exits the country and gets transformed into other things very quickly. So you are not going to catch it. And now we have data virtually no black money was roped in. And another thing it did, it spawned a new kind of corruption. People who did have reasonable amounts of cash when this announcement came, they created what is now called money mules. People who would go to the bank with 4,000 rupee uh, in rupees in cash, which you could, with no questions asked, change, and these people would go and change for other people. So these money mules were going back and forth and uh, changing money for the bigger holders. So it spawned a new kind of corruption. All right. Well, you so, no.
0: I, yes. All right. That's a pretty yeah, comprehensive I, uh, dismissal of that policy. But what about the? the, uh, again, the reformist idea that that imposing a nationwide GST, a a form of VAT, would make India's economy much more efficient and
1: much more integrated. That was a very good idea. So, uh, it had to be done. And I'm very glad that the Modi government managed to uh, go in for that. By the way, GST is an idea that has been there in India for at least 10 years. And with a lot of debate and discussion. During my three years in government, we had a whole host of meetings trying to get the GST through, but we did not succeed. And this government gets the tribute for having managed the politics of it because the ideas were already sketched out. The politics of it very well and managing to push this through. However, uh, I should point out that while the GST had to be done, it has been done. It hasn't been implemented too well. There were too many rates that were used, which is not a good idea. It took We took the Canadian model, by the way. The Indian GST is modeled after Canada. And this when I was in government, we were actively working on that, taking the idea from there and trying to bring it in. You know where this government gets the credit for this. This is interesting, the politics of some of these changes. GST was agreed by all that it's a very good thing. So, whichever government managed to push the GST through would get a lot of credit. And this is one of these ironies of democracy, that when something is agreed by everyone is a good thing, it gets very difficult to get that through because the opposition does not like the idea of any particular government getting it through because the government will get all the credit. So, it was not going through. This government managed it very well and finally managed to push it through. GST, I think, will bring a lot of benefit to India with a time lag.
0: You you explained that the problem was with different rates and some chaos and confusion within it. Can you explain in, in detail what you think the fundamental problems with the GST are?
1: Yes, yes, sure. Um, first of all, let, let me just back up a little bit and explain uh, that there are two sides to the GST. In India, originally, there were a whole lot of cesses and tax, different kinds, at least 20 of them. The effort of GST is to have a uniform tax on consumption being imposed by the central government. All the money gets collected centrally and then given out to states. So the states don't collect the taxes. The taxes get collected centrally and then it's dispersed to the states. So it would do two things. One is it would clean up the many taxes, double taxation, Goods escaping any taxation with one uniform system, very, very desirable. Number two, because of this cumbersome system of states, city governments imposing taxes, the bureaucracy and the cost of companies being stopped, freight being stopped when going from one city to another at different state checkposts was a huge bureaucratic cost in India. The GST can stop that altogether. I'll give you one number, which is a very telltale number. When a truck carrying freight goes from one city in India to another faraway city, it spends, on average, 60% of the time stationary. The bulk of this is at checkposts paying taxes. This is World Bank data. GST, apart from cleaning up the system of multiple taxation can put an end to this. It, there can be a rule saying that no truck can be stopped at a check post from origin to destination. It just flows. It goes there. At destination, you pay your taxes and that's done. This cleaning up of the bureaucratic cost, which is the bis- big stumbling block for India, can be achieved through GST and I think ultimately it will be achieved. But what happened was in the beginning, and this is giving in to different lobbies, the government was saying, okay, we'll have a different tax rate for this product another tax rate for that product. And this has cluttered up the system very messily. So that will need to be cleaned up as we move ahead.
0: Hmm. All right. As we approach the close of this interview, I want you to reflect on whether you feel India's current economic position is strong or whether it's actually somewhat fragile. Because if one looks at the temper in the world, not just in the BRIC countries, but across the world, in particular, perhaps Donald Trump's America, there is the sense of protectionism being an economic argument which finds sympathy in uh, increasing numbers of capital cities around the world. Protectionism, perhaps, could sweep India, too. And I just wonder whether you feel Right now is a moment of great opportunity and strength for India, or whether there's a fragility to what what is happening under the surface in the Indian
1: economy yes. and politics. There is great scope for India, but there is also a certain amount of fragility. India, especially from 2003 and, from, and even more so from 2005, has been on a very good wicket. And the growth rate was over 9% for three consecutive years. And with fundamental strength. So I think on the whole, India is very strongly positioned. But there have been lots of little slips in policy over the last two years. And I'm beginning to worry that not enough expertise is being used to draft policy. And that does create a fragility. And one of them does pertain to what you're talking about, uh, closeness and openness in the last budget India saw the raising of tariffs once again. After a good, from 1991, it's been a steady movement of bringing down tariffs, opening up the Indian economy and integrating India with the world. This was a reversal, which is extremely worrying. Done presumably to block Chinese goods from coming into India uh, easily. But it's an alarming move when India raises tariffs. So I think there have been a couple of mistaken moves. The demonetization was the big one. The trying to close the Indian economy once again is a mistake. I like to believe, however, that these things will get corrected because on the whole, India is on a strong wicket. And in, I know you're not asking about this. There is some disquiet in India on the social side if that can also be controlled so that India does not damage its democracy and its free media, these economic mistakes will get corrected, and the future for India does look very, very good.
0: Well, I know you are not an active supporter of the current political administration in India, and Prime Minister Modi in particular, but are you suggesting to me, as we discussed earlier, the marriage of democracy and economic development in India, are you suggesting to me that there is a perhaps a brand of political populism at work in India, which you think in the long run could threaten India's economic trajectory?
1: Yes, I do worry about that, and I should tell you that um, it's not as if I'm... Um, uh Against the present government per se, I feel on the economic front, especially on doing business, it has made some very good moves. My actually... There's only one concern with the government and which is what you were touching on, that it could end up damaging India's democracy and openness and culture of tolerance, uh, freedom of speech, which has been very much a part of India almost from the time of independence. That's what that's the only thing about this government that worries me. The economic mistakes all governments make, this government can correct that. And, uh, And, mm, And the social side. In the long run, first of all, to me, that's an end in itself. Whether or not that's good for the economy, I I would value the traits of openness and democracy. But in the long run, it can do damage to the economic growth. In fact, it will do damage to economic growth because we have seen in countries with very few exceptions, and I don't deny that there are exceptions, when the control becomes too powerful at the centre, you have a good run of economic growth for some time, and then the mistakes begin to take place, and the system of open criticism, changing policies, that system has been so badly damaged that the country begins to stumble. And there is a little bit of that risk for India.
0: And a final thought, which is really about hubris. You know, Indians on the whole, I think do feel quite positive that the future for their economy is bright and that their children will probably have a better economic circumstance than they have had. And that that is a positive feeling. But there are some danger signs. If one looks at the banking sector, the, the scale of bad loans appears to be enormous. We've had particular sort of financial scandals involving the Punjab National Bank and others. It, It's the same thing in China too. So bringing it back to the BRICS, you know, there is a sense in which uh, there, uh, there's a lot of bad debt out there, private debt, if not not as uh, just talking about government public debt. And that in the long run could bring its own set of problems.
1: Yes, and the hubris, I mean, to feel good about yourself, to feel generally optimistic about your country's future, these are wonderful traits. Any country should nurture that. And I feel in India, there is that feeling. But there is also, and hubris is the right word, Uh, which uh, has negative connotations two ways. One is you can develop a bit of a foolish hubris that my country had done it all 2,000 years ago and let me sit back. There is a tendency that actually a whole host of countries have that and there is some risk of that in India. Number two, when you begin to feel good about your country's progress, economy doing well, you look the other way from the risks and the risks that we have just seen in India of big corruption scandals, of money being um, borrowed from banks with complicity of uh, bank officials this unfortunately this cannot be just laid all at the doorstep of the present government because it's happening now this has had a long history its uh, governments have crisscrossed but this has continued in india but there were people who were beginning to feel that this is going to come down in india But what has just happened and the big news hitting um, of huge sums of money, I mean, $1.8 billion being taken out of a bank is staggering by any um, um, global comparison of one individual and a small cluster taking that money out is a huge amount. This is unfortunate. And India has to be on the lookout for crony capitalism because in the end that can cripple uh, economic policies if a few big business groups begin to capture government and banks.
0: Korshik Basu, I thank you so much. That's a fascinating overview of what's happening in India today and in the recent past.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Stephen Sacker. I enjoyed
0: the conversation. Stephen was in conversation with ex-chief economist at the World Bank and former chief economic advisor to the government of India, Korshik Basu. Brick Talk was produced by Freddie Chick and Ashley Byrne and is an MIM production for the University of Manchester.